there be light. If you could please join with me uh, and open your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. That is the fifth book in the Bible, just after Numbers. And in Deuteronomy, we'll be looking at chapter 10, verses 12 through the first verse of chapter 11. So let us read first and then we'll pray. This is the reading of God's eternal word. So now, Israel, what does Yahweh your God ask from you but to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in all his ways and love him? And to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And to keep the commandments of Yahweh and his statutes which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to Yahweh your God belong heaven and the highest heavens. The earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did Yahweh set his affection to love them. And he chose their seed after them. Even you above all peoples as it is this day. So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. For Yahweh your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the fearsome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows love for the sojourner by giving him food and clothing. So show love for the sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt Yahweh your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and to him you shall cling, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise, and he is your God, who has done these great and fearsome things for you, which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, seventy persons in all, and now Yahweh your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. You shall therefore love Yahweh your God. And keep his charge, his statutes, his judgments, and his commandments all your days. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Father, for gathering us here today in this place to open up your word and to learn what you would have us understand from this book. This is the book that you have given to your church, to your beloved bride, by which we can understand who you are, understand who we are, and therefore come to a true saving knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ, and be saved. Please allow us to hear this word today. Allow us it to fill our hearts with more love and adoration for you, as it should every day of the year. And please let us magnify your son with praise and worship and thanksgiving as we learn from this book today. We ask all this in his precious name. Amen. So I hope you're all having a, a nice holiday season so far. We're about halfway through it. Typically it runs right after Thanksgiving and goes right up till the new year. Here we are on the 10th, pretty much smack dab in the middle of all of it. And what you start to hear is you hear a lot of people talk about 
the season and they talk about people having what they call the holiday spirit. People get into the, the mood, they get into the festivities of, of, what is rattling? Sorry. They get into the festivities and they get into the, the, the holiday season and they feel like they're, spilled, uh, they're filled with this spirit of thanksgiving and love and harmony with the world and the people around them. It's the holiday spirit. That word holiday, the etymology means it's meant to represent a holy day. The spirit people have during a holy day. But what is it? Is it really something that's holy to the people of the world? Is it really something that's filling people with holiness and uniqueness and Christ-likeness? I would put before you that that's not what the holiday spirit is at all. It's merely a seasonal affectation of the world. It's a tradition of men by which they, they get into this spirit because it makes them feel good as people. We know that because of what it looks like. It is celebratory. It's celebrations, it's parties, it's festivities. It's people putting up stringers and lights and and giant trees and it lines the city streets and you see it around every corner. Yet it's not necessarily all that Christian nowadays, is it? My job, we have a nice menorah almost right next to the Christmas tree. Trying to put it all together. It is charitable. This is when you start to see the red cross, the big red buckets. I just saw the, the, the firemen yesterday with their filled boot. Every guy out on the street asking people to put money in the boots. Because this is the time people feel charitable. This is the time in the year where people want to help others. And it's also a consumerist season. It is holiday sales, it's Black Friday deals, it's Cyber Monday, it's Christmas lists and shopping lists, to-do lists, a whole lot of lists around the holiday season. You put it all together, that's the holiday spirit for the world. Who has it? Well, the open-minded people think they have it. Those that are inclusionists. They want it to be an inclusive holiday. They don't want to just celebrate Christmas. They want to celebrate Christmas, and they want to celebrate Hanukkah, and they want to celebrate the solstice. They want to celebrate it all together as one big festival, one big party. Those people that think they are the love spreaders of the world. Those people that are out there to spread good cheer and joy to all the people that are around them because it's the way that they're feeling right now. It's a lot of Christmas music. But how does it compare with the Holy Spirit? When the Bible tells us that we as the people of God have the Holy Spirit within us, how do we respond to that truth? When we come to this holiday season... Are we responding in a way that demonstrates things of the world, or are we demonstrating the likeness of Christ in our lives? Which is why I tell you this is not necessarily a holiday sermon. This is merely an examination of these verses of holiness in light of a culture that wants to tell us that it is special and good and loving towards its neighbor. 
And we begin in this, this passage with that, that word so. So now Israel. This is coming after a, a conclusion of a few statements that Moses is making. This is the book of Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book of Moses, the, what's known as the Pentateuch, also known as the Torah, also known generally as the law of God. It begins with Genesis, telling us about the creation, then telling us about the fall of Adam and Eve, telling us about Abraham, the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, ending with the people of God being ushered into the, to the land of Egypt where they would be taken captive by the Pharaoh and they would spend 400 years in slavery. Which brings us to Exodus, where we learn about these people that are now in captivity, and we meet a man named Moses, as the Pharaoh decided that the Israelites were becoming too great and too large, he decided he was going to kill all the male children of Egypt. But this one young baby, Moses, was saved by his mother, who placed him in a basket in the river, and he was found by the Pharaoh's daughter, and he was raised with a good life, till he murdered a man standing up for his people, went into the wilderness himself, and God called him to be his chosen messenger for his people, to lead the people out of Egypt. We see him go to Pharaoh. We see the plagues of Egypt. We see the parting of the Red Sea, the Ten Commandments given on Sinai, the instructions for the building of the tabernacle in Exodus. Then we come to Leviticus, where we see the the instilling of temple worship being drawn out for the people of God, how they are to live holy before God, how they are to be a set-apart holy people for God to represent his holiness in the world. They are to be unique. Then we come to Numbers, as they journey to Canaan, and their failure as they send spies into the land, and they feel like these people that are in the land of Canaan are too big and too strong for them and they feel like they're going to be destroyed despite God having already delivered them from Egypt, delivering them from Pharaoh and they are fearful. And as punishment, God says that that generation will not pass into the land of Canaan and he sends them back into the wilderness to spend the next 40 years of their lives so that that generation could pass away in death and the next generation would be prepared to enter the promised land. And that's where we find ourselves in the book of Deuteronomy. It's the end of that 40-year period. They've spent 40 years in the wilderness. They've seen an entire generation of their people lost to death. And God is now telling them, he, he spends the first few chapters of this book recounting that time in the wilderness, the things that they did in the wilderness, and then he begins to give them the law a second time, which is what the book of Deuteronomy means. It means second law. To prepare them to enter into the kingdom of God, to prepare them to enter into that promised land, he gives them his law. He says, this is the law by which you will be my people. This is the law that will set you apart. This is the law that will govern you in righteousness and love towards your people. And then finally, he warns them against idolatry in the last couple chapters. And then we get to this 
portion here, the former verse in verse 11 reads, Then Yahweh said to me, Arise, go on your journey ahead of the people, that they may go in possession, go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Them being Israel, that special chosen people of God. A couple chapters earlier in Deuteronomy 7, we read, For you are a holy people to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Yahweh did not set his affection on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because Yahweh loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, Yahweh brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. That you know there, that you shall know therefore that Yahweh your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. So that's what this people Israel is. They are this special possession of God that he has set apart to reflect his glory, to live by his commands, to live by his judgments and his statues, and to make sure of that before he sends them into the promised land, he gives them this law all over again. And that's the so now Israel. What is our response to a faithful God that has already done that, that has kept every single promise to the people of God up to this point? He promised he would make Abraham's people more numerous than the stars, and he's done that. He promised them he would leave them out of slavery. He's done that. He's done great and powerful things for them to do that through the Red Sea. He's done great and powerful things to keep them alive and sustained in the wilderness. And he's, about, he's promised that he's already portioned out the land of Canaan that he's about to lead these people into to give it to them as an inheritance and a possession. And he says, what is your response what does Yahweh now, what does Yahweh your God ask from you but to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of Yahweh and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. You should be hearing it over and over and over again, that name Yahweh. The covenant name of God. I know a lot of your translations just say Lord, capital L-O-R-D. There's reasons why it says that, but it's the name Yahweh. It's that covenant name that was given to the people of, of Israel. We read that in Exodus 3, where Moses was faced with the, the holy God himself. In chapter 3, verse 13, Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am about to come to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they will say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is, it's used Eight times as Yahweh your God. It's used ten times total in this passage alone. Yahweh, your God. Yahweh, your God. 
He is a personal God. We have a relationship with God. He has revealed himself to us by name. He's not a silent God. He's not a mystical force. He's not a mystical spirit. He's not a vapor in the wind that surrounds the world and tells it, just gives it that sense, that Holy Spirit. No, he has revealed himself to us personally, and he tells us, I am your God, and you shall live for me. You shall live in the way that I direct you to live, because you are my people. It says, what does Yahweh your God ask from you? It might say, require of you. Essentially, it's saying, what does God expect of you? That's a question we ask ourselves all the time. How do I deal with these things in life? What does God want me to do? What is God trying to tell me? I don't understand. The world is too painful or the world is too confusing. These trials are too tough for me. This decision is too hard. I don't understand. God is saying, I am your God. I'm giving you what my requirements are right here. And he gives us five initial instructions. To fear him, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve him, and to keep his commandments. That's what it means to be set apart for God. We fear God, not as a, as a source of, of punishment, but as a source of, of, of reverence. Proverbs 1 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom and understanding. We seek to know God because it's through him that we can find any hope in this world that we live in. One commentator said, The fear of the Lord springs from the knowledge of one's own unholiness in the presence of the holy God. Which made me, immediately when I read that, think of Isaiah. When the prophet Isaiah faced a holy God for the first time in Isaiah chapter 6, where we read, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called out while the house of God was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. Which then made me immediately think of Sproul's comment on that verse, where he said, that in that moment, Isaiah was faced with who God was truly was. And in the same moment, the terrifying thing was that Isaiah was faced with who Isaiah truly was. Only when we're faced with a holy God, not an empty God, not a possible God, but a real personal God that we understand to be holy and righteous and true and just, 
Do we understand that we are sinners that have no place? We have no right to stand in his presence because we are sinners. We represent iniquity. We represent the sinful things of the world. But it's there where you understand who God is that he starts to reveal himself to you. So fear the Lord your God. We are to walk in his ways. Someone tells us how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And in his law, he meditates day and night, and he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. This book has all kinds of instructions for you. All the different ways that God wants us to act and live in this world, it's all contained here. We are set apart people for God, and he has given us these commandments. And through that, we understand the character and nature of God. And we understand how we are to be image bearers of God here in this world. And through that, he tells us to love him. To love him and to serve him. That word love is a difficult word to understand. Because we keep wanting to apply value to it after the fact. I talk to people all the time that are married couples, and I always ask them the question, why do you love your wife? Or why do you love your husband? And they think about it, and then they think about answering it, and then there's a hesitation because they realize there's no really good answer to that question. Because once you attach a value to it, once you attach a reason, that reason can falter. Is it because they're beautiful? Looks go away very quickly. Is it because they're sweet or kind? You just haven't met that person on one of their bad days yet. Is it because they're honest or good? We know there's nobody good but the Father. There's nobody good but God. You're looking at a sinful person that you're telling me you love. Why do you love them? The value of love is in love itself. You love them because you've chosen to love that person. And I tell people... Embrace that because it is a beautiful picture of election. You've elected, you've chosen out of all these people, somebody that's good looking, there could be better looking people, there could be smarter, there could be more interesting people. You've still chosen to love the person that you're with. And God has chosen to love you. The world has a love too, but that love is fickle. Goes away very, very easily. This holiday season is going to end. And the Holy Spirit and the, the holiday spirit in people is going to change into something else. 
not going to be loving anymore. It's not going to be as charitable. It's going to shift. It's going to go back to being the world, the way the world lives and the way the world acts in this world. We have to be those that are the faithful lovers as Christians. Seeking to be faithful first to God will make us faithful to our common man. It will allow us to love more fully. We're also told to serve God and all of these instructions to fear him, to walk in his way, well, to fear him and to love him and to serve him, keep his commandments, are all repeated in this passage. They're all given to us twice to serve him. How do we serve God? Service has always been a part of God's model of, of humanity. When God created Adam and he placed him in the garden, it said that he had Adam placed in the garden so that he could cultivate it and keep it. Those verbs, the way that they're used together, is only used in another place in the Bible, and that's when in the book of uh, talking about the Levites and their service in the temple. Our service to God is worship. It's honoring to God, and it's always been a part of redemptive story. That's before the fall. God always intended for us to work and to serve him, to glorify him, to glorify his name. And it tells us to keep the commandments. Keep the commandments of Yahweh and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. When we think about the law of God, how do we respond to it? Is it just this set of restrictions telling us what we can't do? I would tell you that that's the wrong way to respond to the law of God. Now, I'm not telling you to obey the commandments as a method of getting into heaven. There's no salvation that comes from obeying the laws of God. We are under grace. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That is how we are saved. But because of that salvation, because of that grace, we are now liberated. We are free from bondage of captivity. We are free from the condemnation of the law. We are free from, from having to see this book as a set of rules that we can't follow, from, from, from resenting it for what it is. We can have a different relationship with the law now. But first and foremost, we need the gospel of Jesus Christ to actually come into our hearts and save us. To understand that the, the rebellion of the Israelites that we see wasn't the beginning. But Adam and Eve, as they were placed in the garden to work and to serve God and to love him and to know him and to speak with him, they sinned first. They took from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which was not for them to have, they sought to be autonomous, to, to create their own rule of law that was better than God's because they were deceived by the serpent. They took that fruit and they ate of it willingly and they fell into sin. And because of that, every single one of us has that stain of sin upon us. But God promised in Genesis 
that there would be the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. serpent. And that seed was Jesus Christ. Through the woman would come a seed, would come a chosen people of God, the people of Israel, and through that people would come a Messiah, would come God's anointed, who would come and he would bear the burden of the sins of the people. He promised that there would be a new covenant made with them. Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will cut a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I cut with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, but I was a husband to them, declares Yahweh. But this is the covenant which I will cut with the house of Israel. After those days, declares Yahweh, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And through that Messiah would come salvation. And we're about to celebrate the birth of that Messiah in the coming weeks. That 2,000 or some odd years ago, God came in the flesh. The word was made flesh and the flesh dwelt among us. He didn't just come to suffer and die. He came to live. Jesus Christ came so that he could live a perfect life life, that he could fulfill all the commands of God, that he could fulfill all of the law of God, so that he could be our representative, so that all of that fulfillment, all of that integrity, all of that righteousness could be applied to us when the time came. And then at the appointed time, he did die. He laid down his life willingly so that his sheep could be spared And then, in victory, he rose again on the third day. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he intercedes on behalf of his people. That man was Jesus Christ. He is the man that we put our faith and our trust in wholly. It's by believing in what he accomplished on the cross living that perfect life, that his, his righteousness could be applied to us and that through his death our sins have been paid and that through his resurrection he would be the first fruits of our resurrection on the day, on the last day. And now we're given that gospel message that we share with the entire world. Anybody who wishes to be saved can be saved. You repent of your sins and you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Every one of you. A lot of newcomers here. I hope that that's something you've done in your lives. That you've considered who you are before God. That you are unholy sinners before him. That you've committed sin your entire life. And that the only way that you can have reconciliation with God, the only way your life can be redeemed, is by putting your faith in the Savior Jesus Christ. He is your only Hope in this world. And through that relationship we now have with Christ, as I said, we can have a new relationship with the law of God. 
instead of being restrictive and telling us what we can't do, the law of God now conforms us to the image of Christ. We don't worship as uh, antinomians. Antinomianism is those people that believe that because of the gospel, we don't have to have the law at all. We don't have to be concerned with it. We don't have to worry about it. Well, then how do you know when you sinned against God? How do you know what you need forgiveness for? When you celebrate the Lord's table and it says, do this in remembrance of me, what are you remembering him for? If the law has been completely abolished, it has been completely dealt with, it's been completely fulfilled in Christ. But you see over and over and over that our relationship with the law shouldn't be that. Jesus said in Matthew, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. In John 8, he says that I always do the things that please the Father. I'd take you to one of the most beautiful psalms we have, Psalm 119, the longest book in the entire Bible that is all about the law and the word of God and the scriptures. Where David, who we're told was a man after God's own heart, wrote these words where he wrote, Your word I have treasured in my heart, that I may not sin against you. Verse 34, Cause me to understand that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Then one more in verse 165, Those who love your law have much peace and nothing causes them to stumble. I put it before you, brothers and sisters, that we should have a great relationship with the law of God. We should learn to love God's law, not as that which saves us, but as that which instructs us as to who God is and then teaches us who Christ is because Christ fulfilled this book completely. And it tells us that day by day we should be more and more like Christ. You can't do that without understanding his word can't do that without seeking to conform yourself to what it teaches you to do. Getting back to our text. The phrase to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and keep the commandments of Yahweh and his statutes when I'm commanding you today for your good. This would bring to mind what Moses had just told these Israelites in Deuteronomy 6. He wrote, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. This was a very important passage for the Israelite people, something known as the Shema something that they recited daily in their prayers. That word Shema, meaning the the first word in that phrase, meaning hero Israel. Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Achad. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God and Yahweh is one. Every day, multiple times a day, repeating that prayer, making sure that they are associating themselves with Yahweh, 
that they are aligning themselves with the one true God of Israel. It was a renewal of a holy promise to talk about our heart and our worshiping with our heart and our soul and our strength. Or that word might. That's not a strength of, of actual physical strength. It's, it's, a, it's an inner strength. It's a fervitude. The man who I heard comment on this said that the, the actual, if he had to put a, a word on it in Hebrew, he would call it its veriness. It's, it's meant to, to implicate you as far as you, you're being absolutely overwhelmed with the sensation of wanting to serve God. Jesus Christ repeated this as the great commandment. And when one of the scribes came and heard them arguing, he recognized that he had answered them well and asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is here, O Israel, the Lord is our God, is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord with your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. These are important words in the Bible. They tell us how we should govern our entire relationship to God, how we should love him in in peace and harmony. It gives us that reason in the next couple verses. Behold, to Yahweh your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did Yahweh set his affection to love them, and he chose their seed after them, even you above all peoples as it is to this day. It's saying that as God owns everything, taking them right back to Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And when you look at all of the heavens and all of the earth, and you look at this earth that is filled with, with giant massive oceans, and is filled with giant, mountain, uh, giant oceans and giant mountains, and is filled with the beasts of the sea, and filled with the beasts of the air, and filled with the beasts of the ground, and filled with trees and plants and flowers, millions of species of everything around us, surrounded by the sun and the moon that govern the night and the day, the God who actually created and set time into motion, created billions of stars, trillions of stars, to which we can't even see the end of, and placed them all in the sky high up, and he gives each one of them a name. Amid all of that, God chose you. Yet on your father's, It almost feels like it could belong in your But God series. God created everything in the world, but God set his affection on your fathers to love them, and he chose them. Once again, we see that beautiful, sovereign election of God taking place, where he has chosen a people for his own glory, a people through which he could set his affection on them and their seed, even you. Just to let you know, we're all the seed of Abraham. We read about that in Romans 9. I don't have time to go into it today, but read it for yourselves. It's great. But then we come to the heart of the passage. So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. 
Translation should actually say, so circumcise the foreskin of your heart, bringing them right back to that sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham in the very beginning. He's telling his people to be holy, holy. Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, H-O-L-Y. Be completely and fully holy. Be completely and fully set apart for God in every aspect of your life. If you fear God and love him and keep his commandments and serve him, there's no way you can't be set apart for God. There's no way, if you're doing those things, that you can be confused with the people of this world. It's simply an impossibility. So what does it look like in your life? As you go out this holiday season, how are you interacting with the world? Are you seeking to be celebratory? And are you seeking to be charitable? Are you seeking to be consumerist? Or are you seeking to be God-honoring people that want to love your God with all of your heart because of what this holiday season represents? That God would send his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, die a sinner's death so that you might be saved. And this doesn't just apply to you. Parents, I ain't implore you to teach these commandments to your children as well. Children are little sponges, and they pick up on a whole lot. I saw a video of a small uh, family, the, this mother, this father, and this small child, and every day the father was playing with the kid on the carpet, and the mother was sweeping, and she had this little swifter thing, and every day when the mother would come by, he'd pick the kid up, put him aside, put all the to- toys in the bin, and then lift up the carpet so the mother could come by and sweep. And you see this over and over and over again every day, like five or six times. And then one day the father's not there. And what does the child do? Puts his toys in the bin and he lifts up the carpet. And the mother was super ecstatic. I've never seen a happier mother in my life. It's like, he's getting it, he's learning. But even at this age, this kid probably couldn't even talk yet. And he was already picking up on how his parents were interacting with each other. Your children, or soon-to-be children, are observing you constantly to see how they live in this world. They're watching you. They're observing you. They want to see how you live. They want to see how you love. They want to see how you pray. They want to see how you read the word. They want to see how you worship. As you're singing, I see the eyes of children. They're looking at everybody. And they're picking up on everything. Be an example for your children. I'm running out of time. Just a couple more things. It also says in that same verse, to stiffen your neck no longer. That imagery, that word stiffen, um, kasha, is a, a word that means literally to hard or get hard or harden. Gives you that image of a an ox being stiff in the neck as you're trying to drag it along to to, to work in the fields. And it doesn't want to work. We don't want to be that way. We don't want to be stubborn oxes. We want to be sensitive. 
to the things of this world. I think of Caesar Milan, you know, the dog whisperer, as he's constantly trying to teach people with their dogs. You ever see him teach people how to walk a dog on a leash? He's saying, don't be tense with your, don't be tense with the leash because that's going to transfer to the dog. They're going to pick up on your tension and then they're going to act tense with other people and other dogs and it makes them really eager and they might bite people. Saying, be relaxed. If you look at the law of God and you have a tense relationship with it, you're going to act tense. Oh, I haven't kept the law today. I haven't done what is good. I haven't done what is right. Be relaxed. God says, my law is not burdensome for you. You can't be condemned by it anymore. You can't be hurt by this, this law anymore. If you're in Christ, you're freed from that. You can just love it for what it is, which is a reflection of who God is. I have to cut out a lot of this, but I would just give up one more illustration before I finish. So, uh, a man I, I learned about recently named Abraham Wald. Not a historical figure you necessarily need to know, but during World War II, as they would send planes out on bombing runs, they were losing a lot of planes that were getting shot down. And they decided they wanted to add more armor to the planes, but you can't put too much metal on a plane or it'll fall out of the sky. So they said, we need to, to figure out where, the, where these planes are getting hit so we know what to protect. So as planes would return, they would count the bullet holes, and they would look at where the bullet holes were hitting the planes. And they put more armor on the plane, and you know what happened? They were losing the same amount of planes. Then there was this German-Jewish statistician named Abraham Wald who they hired to help figure out the problem. And he realized you're suffering from something called survivorship bias. You need to put the armor where the bullet holes aren't. Because the ones that you're counting the bullet holes on are the ones that are surviving the trip. Where the bullet holes, where you're not seeing bullet holes is where the, the, the plane was shot and it didn't make the trip. It would crash right away. So you have to pull up the bullet, you got to put the armor there. You need to understand that as a sinner... God hasn't even yet begun to show you the levels of your depravity. There are parts, deep-seated secrets in your heart and your mind that only God knows about right now. Don't think that just because you're successful in dealing with one sin that there aren't a hundred other sins that need to be dealt with. And you can't do that if you're just judging yourself based on your own successes and failures. You have to judge everything, every aspect of your life by this book. That's when you'll truly have a good grounding on who you are and where your shortcomings might be. Sadly, I have to end it there. But I'll just conclude this in the final verse, in chapter 11, verse 1. It says, You shall therefore love Yahweh your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his judgments, and his commandments all your days. Don't just seek to celebrate the holidays, but live for God all of your days. Understand that on December 26th or January 2nd, just like Cinderella, the world's holiday spirit is going to turn back into a pumpkin. And when it does, that pumpkin is instantly going to be rotten to the core. Don't let that deflate you 
in your walk with Christ. Don't let that twist your hearts from being good, holy people that seek to love and honor the Lord your God. Honor Yahweh your God. As Richard Baxter said, this life was not intended to be the place of our perfection, but the preparation for it. So read your Bibles and understand it there. As Mark Dever said, don't just build your life as one great fortress against sin, one great negation, though that can be good and wise, that you're aware of your weaknesses. But friends, positively pray that God give you a great love and a greater love for him. And I pray that all of you will do that as we enter into this holiday season and that you'll begin to live your entire lives, not just the holidays, but all your days for Yahweh, your God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your, for your message to us, Father. We thank you for opening your word and teaching us from it. As we know, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for us. Please let this message as it expounds upon your word be profitable for my brothers and sisters and for me as well. We all need to hear from you daily, Father. We all need to, to, to live and breathe as people of the book. People that seek and desire to love you and know you more so that we might conform more and more to your son, Jesus Christ. That true object of our faith, that faith which saves us. I thank you for everything you've done through him, Father, in our lives. And I ask that you would bless this time together and our lives through this holiday season and our lives forevermore because of what you've done through him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.